This is an ABC podcast. Ever been keen on someone, sent them a message and then they've just not replied? It's a pretty shitty feeling, right? Rejection hurts and it sucks. Even being rejected by someone you didn't even like that much, it still stings. And when we're putting ourselves out there and dating, we're getting rejected all the time. Not just people turning us down for second dates or sex, but every time we swipe and don't get a match, every time someone ghosts us, every time we check our phones and someone hasn't responded or reacted. All of those experiences are tiny rejections and it builds up. D here, your hookup producer. Nat's off sick, so I'm stepping in to bring you a convo we recorded earlier about how to deal with her rejection and heartbreak. It's with world-renowned psychologist Dr Guy Winch. And not only is Guy a psychologist, he's also the advice columnist for TED Ideas and the author of Emotional First Aid. It's basically a book with practical strategies for treating failure, rejection, guilt and other everyday psychological injuries. Guy reckons young people are the most rejected generation in our history and it's really messing with our mental health. So to help cope, we need to start treating emotional pain like physical pain. Honestly, he's got such a brain and there's so much to learn from this chat, not only just about micro-rejections and dating, but also how to heal from a big heartbreak. So I hope you love it. Here's Nat. Enjoy. Thank you so much for taking the time out to be with us all the way from New York. It's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. You are an expert in realms of of emotional pain and heartbreak and helping people heal from that. Um, You've established the idea of emotional first aid. Um, I think before we get into the pain around relationships. Just talk to me about this concept and why it's important to look after our emotional selves as much as our physical selves. Well, we get injured emotionally as adults or, you know, young adults, even more than we do physical injuries. We experience rejections daily. We experience failures. We experience loneliness. We experience all these emotional wounds that we should actually do something about. And yet our sophistication when it comes to what to do is very lagging behind where we are, you know, when it comes to the physical domain. If I get a cut, I kind of know, and most people do, do I need a stitch there, maybe a bandage, or do I hail a cab quick to the ER because I'm gushing? But we don't even know what an emotional wound is. And there are all these science-based techniques we could use to soothe and heal emotional wounds. So we heal more fully and more quickly but we don't think to do it and we don't know enough about it. So that's what I'm trying to spread the word about, that we pay attention to emotional pain because it's a sign of an emotional wound. And what can happen if emotional wounds are left untended? You know, we know that if we don't go to the hospital and get our legs sorted out, we could lose it potentially. So what long-term impacts can ignoring emotional um, trauma do to us? Well, just as, let's look at a very simple example. You get, you're on a dating app, you get rejected and it's really painful and you're not soothing that pain. You're not addressing it. Your instinct is likely to be, and I hear this all the time, well, I'm just, gonna, I'm just not going to be on the app for a while. I'm just going to sit it out. And what that does, it then makes it more scary to get back on the app. It makes you more anxious. It makes you less confident because you're not dealing, you're avoiding. And then you're feeling more lonely. So then suddenly you're feeling lonely and you're feeling disconnected and that's putting you in a bad mood. So when there is an opportunity to meet someone, you're not bringing your best self and you can see a cascade 
happening because that initial wound wasn't taken care of and we leave it to our autopilot and our autopilot doesn't steer us well when we're in emotional distress most of the time. Yeah, right. Well, let's talk a bit more about rejection and heartbreak specifically. Um, let's, um, I guess, if we're continuing to take this metaphor forward, let's just understand the the prognosis and the diagnosis before we um, move to treatment. So um, talk to me about rejection. Um, why does rejection hurt so much? So an interesting thing, I'm going to bring up some uh, brain scan studies because that's where we see what happens in the brain when we get rejected. And there was a study in which people were put in functional MRIs and they were given uh, uh, pain inducers, like heat inducers on their forearms to measure what their brain looked like when they were experiencing strong, strong physical pain. The requirement was, what can you tolerate for seven seconds? And at some point people were like, ah, you know, I can't take it anymore. Then they compared that to a different person who's actually just gotten rejected or heartbroken. And they put them in the functional MRI machine and you look at what happens in the brain and they're very, very similar. The way emotional pain and rejection specifically registers in the brain is almost identical to the way physical pain gets registered in the brain. And it's so we have a strong reaction to it. When we get rejected, it truly hurts our feelings. It hurts. That's the word we use, and it's because pain is involved. Why have we developed that way? So one of the assumptions is that when we were nomadic in hunter-gatherers, in tribes, being ostracized from your tribe would be a death sentence. You couldn't survive without your tribe. And so rejection formed this early warning mechanism. When you got rejected by someone in your tribe, it hinted to you that mm, you might be on the outs here. And so people who experienced rejections as more painful, we're more likely to pay attention to them to correct their behavior or fix the relationship and then make it more likely they would stay in the tribe. Those who did not were more likely to get rejected. Now, over generation after generation, after many thousands of years, it kind of supersizes this advantage that the more painful you feel rejection to be, the more likely you are to survive. And so we literally got wired in this way where we experience rejections as painful. And what the research is, is fascinating because we will experience the same level of pain, more or less, when the person who rejected us is somebody we are not interested in the slightest. In other words, even when we despise, literally despise, the person who's rejecting us, it will hurt our feelings still. Which is just so interesting because it feels to me like so much modern psychology is just fighting these, um, you know, animalistic kind of <laughs> developments that we have and then just like learning, okay, well, they don't apply anymore or they still do kind of, but not in the, in the intense ways that we needed it back then, right? Yeah, but that's exactly, exactly. I mean, it's a funny way to put it, but it's absolutely exactly correct because we have millions of years of evolution perfecting our animal brains to dominate our reactions and our behavior. And then only in the past, you know, million or two years, or certainly in the past 100,000, when we get gotten to our final form of Homo sapiens, did the frontal cortex develop? And that's where we make decisions. That's where we evaluate things. That's where we consider our reactions. However, the frontal cortex is a much weaker pathway to our visceral physiological responses than is our, our more primitive brain. And so we are constantly fighting 
the primitive reactions that want us just to get away from things that, you know, if we get rejected, never go on a date again, that will solve the problem according to our animal brain. But our human brain is like, I would actually like to go on other dates if you don't mind. <laughs> but we have to overcome the animal part that's saying to us, stay away, stay away, danger. We'll talk a little bit more about the ways that you can um, make that frontal cortex, make your captain a bit stronger in this sense. But are some people better at dealing with rejection just kind of naturally? Like do some people just have better control over that sort of thing? So in psychology, we look at uh, something called state and trait. And the trait is what was your, you know, what's your natural disposition? So naturally, there are people who are going to be more sensitive to rejections than those who are not. That will just happen in a very natural way. But state means what's your current state, not the predisposition you bring, but what's going on for you in your life. So for example, if you're on a high and you're having a great day and your self-esteem is at its, you know, good levels, then you might be able to shrug off a rejection much more easily than on a day in which you're feeling bad because things are going poorly at work and you just got into an argument with your parent. And so that's uh, now another thing you're going to be more vulnerable to it. So depends on the hour to hour context of your life, but it also depends on the predisposition and the thickness of your skin, as it were, that you brought to the equation in the first place. Right. Yeah, of course, something I hadn't even thought of, but it's so true. Like if you're in a terrible mood or you're not doing very well rejection it hurts it stings so much more um so I guess if you're feeling sad get don't be on the apps that's the one time to not be on the apps Um, and that's unfortunately when a lot of people go both to apps and to social media and that's what makes them both feel worse yes absolutely and you know you've um sort of written about the concept of micro rejections I just wanted to talk about how, in your view, dating apps is making the experience of rejection worse? Um, it sounds like a little bit of a death by a thousand cuts type scenario. It is. Um, and because we, how are apps used? You go and you swipe and swipe and swipe and swipe and hope you make a match with someone. But how many people do you have to swipe to get a match? So for some people, you can swipe three or four people. And, you know, if you look great and you, you seem desirable, you might get a response. And for some, you might get flooded with people swiping at you and you can just choose among them and for others you have to keep swiping and swiping and it's a while till somebody responds but every swipe is a potential rejection and people check their phones has anyone responded has anyone responded am I getting a notification about a match and every time you check your phone and there isn't a notification you feel rejected and so it's not just oh that person didn't respond it's the 30 times you checked your phone to see if they texted you or responded to you that you feel rejected in the interim. So these micro rejections, we experience so many of them, they really add up and we don't necessarily manage our relationship with our phones well enough to minimize that. We tend to look at it every few seconds, maximizing the rejections, in fact. Yeah, it's a little rejection machine. Um, A a thing that I thought about with rejection is the very modern concept of ghosting. I suppose maybe Mm -hmm. it's not so modern a concept if you think about someone just never calling you back or never writing you back, but you know, it's happened in the past, but I think now it's very ubiquitous and that it's very easy to end a relationship by just terminating contact. What is it about ghosting as a thing that is so, is so painful as a form of rejection? Because it feels like they don't even respect you enough to say no thank you. That the, you know, that text of, 
hey, had a fun time, not for me, or look, I don't think I want to see you again. That's simple. I mean, it takes 10 seconds to write a text like that. The fact that they didn't even go to the trouble is disrespectful. And the fact that you don't know you're being ghosted for a while and you keep checking and oh, maybe tomorrow, maybe later, maybe they'll contact me. And it's only after a while that you realize, oh, they're actually ghosting me. They're actually not responding. And people tend to often reach out and go, hey, what's going on? So they set themselves up for even more rejection. So ghosting is really painful because you don't get any accounting or explanation of why, why did the person disappear, what went wrong, and it's something fundamentally disrespectful about not even saying to somebody, thank you, but no thank you. Are we experiencing more rejection now as a species, as a people, than we ever have before? By far. Because think about it. I hear this all the time from people. You know, we, we're on social media. We like our friends' posts, and we post something, and they don't like ours. Now, the way these platforms work is they might not have seen it because it only populates to a certain number of people. And then if there's response, then it populates to more people. It does it in waves. That's how the algorithm tends to work. So it's not as if any time you post something, everyone on your list is seeing it, but we don't think that. We just feel really insulted that I have a thousand friends and only two of them responded. That's 998 rejections that I might feel of all the people who didn't seem to like my post. Now, you'll find out later on they didn't see it or they saw it, but they just didn't have a free thumb to like it. You know, but we experience on social media so many rejections and on the apps, you know, it used to have to go to a bar or to a club or go somewhere to meet someone and you had to approach them one-on-one -on -one and at least get rejected one at a time. But now you, you put it out there to 50 people and none of them are saying yes or one is saying a tepid yes, 49 are saying no. So yeah, we experience way more rejections than we did. And that's just got to be terrible for our mental health as a society. Like I, I hadn't even really considered the fact that could rejection be a little bit behind um, just the malaise of people in the 21st century. Well, absolutely. And actually what we see is that the younger generation, uh, 18 to you know, 24-year-olds and, and, and the cohort above them are way more depressed, uh, feel much more anxious than previous cohorts. They are the loneliest when it comes to loneliness. Um, it's the 18 to 24-year-olds who are the most lonely cohort across the globe not the geriatrics that we used to think, oh, they're 70 and 80 and they must feel lonely. No, because actually uh, there's a U-curve when it turns to happiness, you tend to do better towards, you know, in your golden years, but it's the younger generation that's really suffering now. And a lot because of this constant feelings of rejection, by the way, in the workplace as well, you send out 30 resumes a day, you know, and you're not getting responses there either. You had to literally mail them and run to the post office and or make phone calls, it used to be a much more one-by-one -one process. So that the way things are set up, it just exposes us to a lot of rejection, a lot of upward comparisons in which we feel like we're not doing well because everyone else seems great and we're not feeling great. So yes, it's, a, it's very, very challenging now. Absolutely. So there we've set up a world that really makes us feel like we're swimming in rejection constantly, all of the time. Um, all kinds from our work to our relationships to dating and the like. That sounds like we're swimming against a very strong tide. So how can we deal with all of this rejection? So first of all, we really need to take control and disengage the autopilot and take control of our use of, say, social media or the dating apps. You should decide if you're on them and you're actively using them 
that um, decide on three touch points during the day. I'll check in the morning for 15 minutes. I'll check at lunchtime. I'll check in the evening or once a day, even if you can. And those are the times where you go and check, you know, disabled notifications. That's when you'll log on and see whether there's somebody who responded to you, who reached out to you, who you matched with, and then you can continue that conversation. But do it in on times that you decide so that it's not something that's distracting you all the time. The, the other thing you have to remember is if you don't know what happened, you got ghosted, they didn't respond. Tendency is to assume that it was us. They didn't like me. Why not assume that it's them, that they had commitment issues, that really they were with someone and they were just trying to get to the other person and stick it to them. So they were on the apps just to, in a way just to cheat and kind of take it out on someone else, but they weren't really available, which happens all the time, that they weren't really serious about dating. They just felt down and wanted to get some attention. You can come up with a thousand explanations about why somebody hasn't responded that do not diminish you. Those are the ones you should go with in the absence of information. Don't choose an interpretation that makes you feel bad. Choose an interpretation that empowers you, that makes you feel good. And you can do that. You can just assume like, all right, they weren't available. You know, they weren't for me. They were, you know, going to be playing games. So good. No need for me to lament them not responding. Why do we have a tendency to assume that rejection is our fault? Because when we feel bad, when we're in pain, our natural tendency is to scan the environment for validation of our pain, you know, and that works in small and stupid ways. For example, a thousand times this happens, like you, you're in your office, you stub your toe on someone's desk and the things that people blurt out is, oh, I hit my job. Nope, you, you just stubbed your toe. But you're feeling so annoyed, you're, you're suddenly remembering everything that's annoying about the job. And it feels like, oh, I hate my job. Because we kind of just go with that emo dominant emotion and try and validate it by looking for evidence in the environment that will validate it. So when we're feeling bad, we tend to feel to double down on it and feel like, yeah, of course I'm feeling bad. Poor me, because no one's interested in me because I'm not this enough or I'm not that enough. And that's the thing that we do most when we get rejected we then tend to beat ourselves when we are already down. We tend to punish ourselves. It's still opposite of what we should be doing post-rejection. Post-rejection, you should be reviving your feelings of self-esteem. And we do the opposite. We review all our shortcomings, everything that's wrong with us, lament every fault we might think we have, and literally do a greatest hits of everything that's wrong with me. And that makes us feel exponentially worse. And it's, and it's a tendency we don't catch enough. And we need to catch it and we need to do the opposite. You were completely speaking to me right there. I do that absolutely all of the time. You know, obviously we're going to keep getting rejected. Is there a way to be, I guess, to get better at being rejected? Two quick things. Number one, I know people do that all the time. What I say to people is like, that has the, the same sense as you getting a cut on your leg and taking a knife to it to see how much deeper you can. It's not something we would do, but we do that in the psychological domain all the time. And we shouldn't. We literally feel bad and then think about everything to make us feel worse. Now, we're not doing it consciously or, you know, on purpose. But once we know we shouldn't, we can catch it. And then we need to do the opposite. And here's what the opposite means in terms of rejection. This is a quick exercise that has been shown to really improve a, our self-esteem to reduce the pain and the sting that we're feeling in terms of rejection and really help us bounce back. Here's the exercise. You got rejected romantically. Make a list of 10 qualities you know you have that make you a good 
partner, a good dating prospect. It can be that you have great eyes, that you are emotionally available, you're, you're a great listener, that you are, you know, you give great back rubs and your, your muffins are unparalleled and, you know, you're a really fun person to be with, you're, you know, whatever it is. Uh, make a list of the things that you know are valuable to people because they've been valuable in the past or you know they would be in the future. For example, being a good listener, being emotionally available, you know, that kind of thing. And then choose one when you're feeling bad, when the rejection happens, and write a paragraph or two. It's five-minute exercise, a paragraph or two about why that quality is important, how it's been appreciated in the past, or how it might be appreciated in the future. In other words, what you're doing with that exercise is you are affirming aspects of yourself you know are valuable. You're reminding yourself, here's what I bring to the table. And that is the counter 180 degree opposite of here's all my lackings and faults and things that I don't have. Instead of that, you're focusing on all you do bring to the table and all the qualities you do have and how much people have admired this about you or loved that about you. That will help you revive your self-esteem. It will make you feel better about yourself. It'll put things in perspective. And if you need to do that twice a day for a week until you feel better, do it twice a day for a week. But make that list, make it something that's meaningful and then write about it. The writing's important. Don't do it in your head. It doesn't work as well, but write it out. And, and that is the exercise to do when you're feeling rejected. Guy, we've been talking about rejection, but I want to really take just a little bit of time to talk about breakups and heartbreak in particular, mm -hmm. because there's one, it's one thing to be rejected by people you're scoping on the apps or someone you've been on a couple of dates with, but being dumped or, um, you know, ending a relationship mm -hmm. that's been a much longer one um, where love has been involved is really, really painful and really difficult to cope with. Firstly, why do those kinds of breakups just hurt so much, a lot more than some physical pain, I think? So this is, you know, upsetting for most people, but here's the reality. When we look at, again, what happens in the brain, when you are heartbroken, it is the same mechanisms get activated as get activated when a heroin addict is withdrawing from heroin or a cocaine addict is withdrawing from cocaine. You literally feel addicted to the person. And in heartbreak, you feel withdrawing from that substance, albeit the substance is a person. Now, when you think of what heroin addicts do in their moments of desperation, nothing would surprise you. Yes, so they're, they're stealing, they're prostituting themselves, they're debasing themselves, they're doing desperate, desperate things. And all we say is like, well, you know, the heroin addicts, what to expect? But it's the same mechanism. And that's why heartbroken people find themselves doing desperate things that are so out of character and that they would never do. And here's 150 texts in an hour. And I want to travel across the country and surprise them, even though they told me they never want to see me again. And, you know, and they grovel and they beg, even though they're proud people and that they never would. They're acting like addicts because they're going through a similar kind of withdrawal. And the value of knowing that is, A, at least it explains your behavior or the impulse. And it makes you know, you know, you're not going crazy. This is what your brain is doing. And then it also tells you that like an addict, you need to go cold turkey. And the best way to get through this, the quickest way to get through it, is to cut off all contact. And all contact means social media, pictures, literally get them out of your headspace.
Does that mean that you can't then um, have a relationship with exes later or think back to, you know, think positively back on relationships later? Like, how do you feel about the, um, I guess, the thank you next phenomenon, (laughs) you know, just like... Well, the way I feel about it is, you know, people say to me, well, can't we be friends? And I'm like, not when you're heartbroken. Get over the heartbreak and then assess whether you actually want to be friends. And 90% of people, once they're over the heartbreak, are like, nah. But certainly 10% more, I don't know how many exactly, but but certainly a lot of people are like, mm, actually, I did like that person. And once I'm feeling better, we can be friends. Or if it's amicable, we can. And people have translated those things into friendships. It can work. But when you're heartbroken, you're just going to use that as an excuse to stay in touch in a way that's actually not good for you. Yeah. Love is so weird. Hey, like you just think about that fact that you could be so intimately passionate about someone. And then once the drug is gone and wears off, you have no interest in them whatsoever. Correct. Correct. It's so strange. So, you know, you're an expert in fixing broken hearts. Um, How similar is the healing process for this um, and what we can learn from these breakups to to rejection like what's what are the steps here for um growing and and becoming stronger after a breakup so first of all i think to the extent that it was a relationship that you were in it's always useful to do some kind of accounting to figure out what did you learn about yourself from this relationship what are the compromises you made that you really figure out you shouldn't make Um, what are the things that you've changed that you want to keep and what are the things that change that you don't want to keep um you know you really want to take some kind of accounting so you get a sense you can learn so that you can learn whatever you need to learn from the relationship and do that you know as soon as you can and then once you've learned what you can from it in your own self-reflection and your own thinking about it then you need to pivot to recovery the pivot to recovery means that you have to restore your sense of identity you just went from being a we to being an I. And that's not just in your pronoun use. It's like literally in what you do on the weekends, because it used to be that, what are we going to do? And now it's me. And I better start thinking about that. It's what friends you need to replace because you lost touch with this one and you lost touch with that one. And you stop doing this thing that you like and you stop doing that thing you like just because of time or compromise or whatever it is. So you have to restore aspects of yourself, of really your sense of self that got marginalized in the relationship or that just got pushed to the side because there just wasn't time for them. And you want to restore that. It pivots on this. You have to have clarity about the fact that it's over. You have to say to yourself, no, this is done. And if you're holding on to hope, it's not done. And you'll have a harder time moving on. And so you really want to get to the point of closure of it's over. And you want to have an explanation of why. Now, you'll never have the right explanation because thank goodness most people don't come and tell you everything they didn't like about you to explain why they're breaking up, nor should they and nor would you want them to. But it's usually some version of um, they drifted emotionally and just fell out of love or they never quite got over that hill of being fully in love. They cared about you. They loved you, but it just wasn't quite enough. It wasn't a good match. It wasn't good timing, they have commitment issues, whatever the explanation is, choose one, choose the one that seems most likely. And again, same principle, one that doesn't diminish you. It is people always say to me like, oh, I wasn't attractive enough. And I'm like, but we are out with them for two years. And your appearance hasn't changed. So that couldn't be the issue, right? Because in other words, 
they were into you two years ago and you look the same, that's not the issue. Maybe they got bored sexually and didn't bring it up. Maybe they drifted. Maybe there's someone who's not good with commitments, but don't go with an explanation that puts you down. Go with an explanation that just talks about the chemistry that either was there and left or was never there fully enough. Yeah. I'm interested too in the in the idea of falling out of love. Why don't you get withdrawals, I guess, when you fall out of love? Like what's happening there? It's a process it's, and it's and it's um, this this slow slide. Usually it's a disconnection that happens. You were present, you were investing in the relationship, you were excited about it. And then you got stressed at work and you didn't have the patience and you came home and all the conversations got a little bit more transactional, like, you know, did you get the milk? Uh, did you pay the bill? Uh, what are we doing this weekend? And it just gets, it's not intimate as much as the conversations. It's not about your feelings and your hopes and your dreams. It's more like about getting through the day and a disconnect happens and you start to feel just emotionally more disconnected from the person. And that's the drifting that happens. And over time, you suddenly realize, you know, I, I, I don't, I'm not connected to them anymore. I don't love them in that way anymore. Care for them. They're great. I'm just not feeling it. And that happens over over time. It's a process of drifting. And if you're not catching it, you can catch it and correct it and, and then re-engage in the relationship, talk about it, try and reinvigorate whatever the, the, you know, the aspects were. But if you just let it go, you will drift and then you'll one out. And then the other person will be like, what happened? Nothing big happened. And often nothing big does. How do we stay open to new love after heartbreak? I imagine, and, you know, been there myself where, when you feel really heartbroken, it can be really hard to feel like you could let new people in. So how do you keep that quest for love alive? Well, but in the throes of heartbreak, it's going to be very difficult to let someone in because someone's still preoccupying your thoughts. You do need to get past them to a certain point to even entertain it. Now, people say to me, how do I know when I'm ready to date? Or people say, how do I know when I'm ready to have sex again? And My answer about dating is, you can go on a date and pay attention 50% of the time, not talk about your ex or burst into tears while you're actually on the date, you might be ready. You might not know it until you try and burst into tears five minutes in and feel like, "Mm, maybe not. And the same deal with sex. Sometimes hooking up can be useful for some people because some people can do it in a less emotional way. Some people can't. So, you know, if you're a person who can only have sex when you're emotionally connected, it's probably not a good idea to do it when you're still recovering. But if you're a person who can do that with emotions a bit to the side, that might be okay. But my advice there is the same thing. If you can get through the sex without either crying or throwing up, okay. That's a high bar. <laughs> I set the bar in a reasonable place. Um, are you a big fan of the rebound as a way of um, getting through heartbreak? Yes, actually. As long as you're honest with the other person. As long as you say to the other person, look, I'm just out of a relationship. I'm not sure that I'm ready for something serious right now. So happy to go forward, but very slowly, because we know that the sooner you can start dating again, the sooner you can start putting yourself into that space again. But you have to be honest with yourself about, are you ready? Or again, are you going to spend most of the time preoccupied and crying perhaps, you know, or not ready? But but the sooner you can, it is helpful. Um, Guy, thank you very much for all of this wisdom and all of these tips and tools and tricks. I think it's going to help a lot of people um, and that's what we do. So just thank you for contributing to that mission on The Hookup. You are very welcome. Thank you for having me and I hope everyone out there heals quickly if they need to. 
How good was that? I mean, I'm speaking for myself, but it's pretty life-changing, hey? And just nice to understand why rejection and dating can hurt so much and really take a toll on your self-esteem. Anyway, if you've got a mate who you reckon would love to listen to this, um, send them this podcast. And if you've ever got a story or a question or whatever, follow us on Instagram at Triple J The Hookup and send us a DM.